Good morning. Uh, good morning to those of you who are in the room and uh, those of you who are uh, watching the portion of our church that's watching online. Glad that, glad that you're here. If you would, join me for a word of prayer and we'll get to it. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and God, uh, I ask uh, that your uh, holy hand and uh, your touch would be on everything that is said and done in this place. I uh, pray, God, that you would move in our midst. I pray for fresh anointing, both personally and for everybody who's in this room. I pray that they would experience you this morning um, in a new way, in a fresh way. I'm grateful for uh, the songs that we've already sung and the truths that are in those lyrics and the power in them. God, I pray now over your word. I pray that it would uh, do what it does. Let it pierce like a double-edged sword. Um, Lord, it goes out this morning. I pray that it finds a home in the hearts of your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Uh, we are, we're kicking off a new series this morning here at Whitestone called More Than Enough. More Than Enough. And the tagline for the series is, uh, refusing to settle for mediocrity. And the idea behind the series is a pretty simple one. Uh, we believe that because of Christ's redeeming work on the cross, we have been granted unlimited access to a holy God. Unlimited access to God's peace, unlimited access to God's power, unlimited access to God's provision. Now the problem is that even with that access, many of us have settled for far less than what God would have for us. God has continually offered us more and we have settled for mediocre. I mean, think about it. Uh, Jesus in the gospels talks about a peace that passes all understanding. How many of you feel like you live fully in that kind of, of peace? Jesus uh, spoke in the Gospels about uh, a power that could move mountains. How many of you are consistently seeing evidence of that power in your life? Jesus spoke about uh, the Word of God as his daily bread, his sustenance, his provision, but how many of you are feasting upon God's Word daily church there is and i think it's undeniable a great divide between what our god can do and what we do there is a great divide between god's capabilities and our abilities y'all know the story of uh of jesus walking on water uh peter they're on the sea of galilee and peter and the disciples are in the boat and they look up and they see a figure walking across the sea and Peter recognizes uh, the person who thinks it's Jesus. And Peter actually, um, I love it, he has the nerve to call out to him. He says, Jesus, if that's you, would you ask me to come to you? Would you invite me to come? And so that's what Jesus does. He says, Peter, come. And Peter steps out of the boat and he takes a, a couple of steps on the sea. And as he's walking, as you know, the Bible says the wind blows and his eyes diverts his attention to the wind, and as he does, he begins to sink. Now, a lot of people interpret that text, and they'll say, well, you know, if, if Peter would have just had more faith in Jesus, 
If he would have just kept his eyes on, on Jesus, I think he, he would have been fine. But I actually think that's a bad interpretation of the text. I, I don't think that Peter uh, doubted Jesus. I think he, he doubted himself. Uh, if, if you think about it, I mean, even as uh, Peter is sinking in the water, he's looking up and Jesus is still standing on the water. So he knows Jesus is capable of standing on the water. And he'd been walking with Jesus for some time. So he'd seen, uh, he'd seen God do all of these incredible sorts of things through his rabbi. What Peter didn't know is, can God do those incredible things through me? He didn't doubt what God could do through Jesus. He doubted what God could do through him and for many of us. I think that this gets to the root of a lot of our spiritual problems. Most of us, I don't think, doubt God. I think we doubt what God is capable of doing through us. Like, we know that God is all-powerful, but can his power flow through us? We know God is love, but can his love flow through us? We know God is always working, but can he use us? Let me remind you this morning, church, that historically, God has done a lot of incredible things through a lot of imperfect people. So why not you? I mean, why, why wouldn't he use you? Why not you? Why not now? And why not you? If you have a relationship with God through Jesus, then you are a child of the King. And being a child of God, uh, brings with it a share of privileges. Like you have full access to the Father. You have full access to God's presence, full access to God's gifts. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says, all things are yours. I think many of us need to be reminded of the heavenly resources that we have at our disposal. And then I think we need somebody who is willing to come along and maybe show us how to better tap into those resources. Years ago, uh, I was leading a, a small team in Haiti. And as part of the trip, we went and we picked up uh, a guy at the Jacmel Airport. Um, he was a guy from the States nicknamed Cowboy. And Cowboy was in his early 50s, but he's, he's recently, he died, died just a couple of, of years ago. And apparently, uh, Cowboy had, in his younger years, uh, lived a pretty rough life. I mean, I'm thinking to get the nickname Cowboy, you had to do some things, you know, don't just, unless he gave it to himself. But uh, for about the last decade, uh, he spent his life traveling around the world, going to third world countries, and building wells in these really obscure communities. And uh, he was with us for a couple of days, and I kind of drove him around the Haitian mountains, and we were looking at a bunch of different locations. He was thinking about uh, his organization might, might be a good spot for him to, um, to build a well. And Cowboy had a reputation for uh, being willing to go places that other people wouldn't go, and he could find water places in what places that other people uh, couldn't find water. And so one of these days, I was driving him around, and we were looking at a bunch of different spots, and I asked him, I said, uh, I said, Cowboy, why do, you, why do you do this work? I mean, you lived your life a completely different way for a long time. I was like, what is it about this work, particularly the digging wells, that you seem to enjoy? And he said, oh, Brock, I love it. He said, I absolutely love it. He's like, my favorite part about doing what I do is he's like, a lot of these villages that we go into, he's like, some people in these villages, it's usually women, and he's like, a lot of them every day will have to get up and to go get fresh water, they'll have to walk like 10 miles. 
It's like a 10 or 15 mile walk every day, carrying their buckets, going to fill it up with fresh water, and then taking it back just so that they'll have water to get through the day. And he's like, they got to do the exact same thing the very next day. And Cowboy said, my favorite part about building wells in these different communities, he's like, I love to go into these villages and show them the richness of the resources that are right underneath their feet. He's like, it is the coolest thing. You go in, he's like, these people have been walking for miles to get water, and then all of a sudden they have it in their village. It's like they can't believe that they've walked so far, but the resource, the water was so close. Church, in many ways, that is my hope for this series. As we talk about Jesus being more than enough and trading our mediocre for his more, I want all of you to be surprised at the richness of the resources in Christ that are available to you. I mean, a lot of you have walked all over the world trying to find peace, trying to find power, trying to find something that has been right here in Christ the whole time. You have living water available to you. It is just underneath your feet. Oh, that God would open our eyes to his presence and that someone would show us how to better tap into it, how to better access all the resources that are available to us. Now, for me, this is where I really think Jesus comes into play. Uh, Jesus was a perfect model of what it looks like for a person to live fully in God's love. He was a, a, a perfect model of what it looks like for God's power to be flowing consistently through a person. He fully embraced his identity as a child of God, and in him all of God's gifts and all of God's attributes were on display. Jesus didn't leave anything on the table. He was a master teacher. And as a master teacher, he didn't just live in this way, but he spent his whole life trying to show a bunch of other guys, and I would say us too, how we might follow in his footsteps and leave, live with that same, in the midst of that same power, provision, and peace. Think about it like this, okay? Right now, you go on Apple's website, apple.com, and their latest computer is an iMac Pro, and you can purchase that computer starting at $5,000, five grand. My first vehicle at 16 in 1996 was a 1988 B2200, two different color red pickup truck. It cost $2,000. And the reason it was two different colors red is because I was uh, driving over Oakland Ridge in, in the Mainable side of Oakland Ridge and I was coming down it and a deer came running out of the woods in a kamikaze mission and slammed into my driver's side door. And it didn't just slam into my door, but it slammed into the door and then it, it, it killed it and it pooped all the way on the side, the left side of my vehicle. And so uh, if you want to know what it's like to grow up in Mainable, I left there and I was going to drive back to show my mom just to let her know, look what this deer did to me, you know? So I drive back to the house. It's like four minutes away. I drive back to the house. I'm like, mom, look at what this, look what, what's happened. And I didn't do it. I mean, you can see it's not even like on my fender. Like it's the door. And like it hit me. I didn't hit it. And I, and I still had to get to what I was doing. And so I left the, the house and I couldn't have been gone 20 minutes. I start to drive. I drive right back by where I had hit the deer and the deer's already gone. Like somebody in Maine was already making deer jerky out of this thing, right? It took like eight minutes and the whole thing's scooped up and, and out of there. 
That has nothing to do with anything. Point is, for the cost of one of these iMac Pros at $5,000, you could have two and a half of my Mazdas. That's five different colors red, okay? Think about what a tragedy it would be if somebody bought one of these computers and then they took it home to their house and they set it up and then all they ever did on this computer was play solitaire. Like they didn't know how to do anything else. And so all they ever did is just click, click, click. They just played solitaire watching, watching the cards go. I mean, this, this machine, it's made to do more than that. I mean, what that person would need would be to somebody come along to show them, hey, this is how all this thing functions. Let me show you what all this thing can do. Let me show you what these buttons can do. You don't have to, you don't have to just play, like this thing will do so many different things. Church, in many ways, this is the role that I think Jesus is meant to play in our lives. God has granted us through Christ unlimited access to himself, to his presence, to his power, and we're just a bunch of little kids playing solitaire. Like we go to church once a week, and we show up on time. We serve like maybe for 30 minutes a week. We are not accessing all the resources that are available to us. And Jesus shows up and he's going, hey, that solitaire's good. That's okay, I know you like that. You can play that sometimes. But let me show you all these other things. Let me show you all these other different gifts. Let me show you all these different, let me show you what it might look like to live a bit more fully in God's presence power, and provision. So for the next several weeks, all me and Mark are going to do is we're going to take turns talking about a bunch of different Jesus stories. We're just going to look at a bunch of different Jesus stories. And our hope is, is that with every story that we see, that we see him accessing more of God's power, that lead us to access more of God's power, and that we would find ourselves wanting to trade our mediocre for God's more. That as a church, we would find ourselves wanting to trade our mediocre for God's more. This leads me to our first Jesus story. First Jesus story of the series. You've got your Bible on you. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. This is a great story. Mark 8. We're just going to look at a few verses. Mark 8, 22 through 26. And this is how the text reads. It says, And they came, came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he'd spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So just a quick recap of the story. There's a guy, a bunch of his friends, take the guy to Jesus. He is blind. They get him to Jesus. They're in the city of Bethsaida. They beg Jesus to heal the man. Jesus takes the man's hand, leads him out of the city, where he then proceeds to spit in the man's eyes. He rubs, spits in his eyes, rubs them once, asks the guy, can you see clearly? And the guy says, uh, I see people, but they look like trees moving around. So then Jesus touches his eyes again, and the man is able to see clearly. And Jesus says, return to your home, but don't let the people in the village see you. 
Church, there is a lot going on in this story. You know, Bethsaida was a city that had a reputation for unbelief. I don't know if many of you will remember this, but actually in Matthew chapter uh, 11, uh, Jesus cursed the city of Bethsaida. In Matthew 11, he says, uh, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, if the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, the people would have repented long ago. And so I think it's very interesting that when the people ask, they bring the man to Jesus and they ask Jesus to, to heal him. And the first thing Jesus does is he takes the guy and he leads him out of the city. He leads him out of Bethsaida. Why? Well, I think there are a few different reasons that, that he did it, maybe. I mean, one, maybe he just wanted to remove the man uh, from a city that was filled with unbelief. Maybe he just didn't think like this was a good place for him to be surrounded by unbelief. We'll get him out of that environment and into a different environment. I think that could be it. I also think that it's possible that Jesus was so frustrated by Bethsaida and the lack of movement that that city saw when miracles were performed there and the lack of followers that he developed that he thought this city isn't worthy of another miracle. And so I'm going to take him to a new place because maybe if I take him to a new city and they see what I can do, they see my power on display, maybe they will be open to my message. Maybe they will be open to what I can do. Now, my favorite possibility is this. I, I, I really hope, and, and I really do believe that Jesus was this intentional, that when the guy came to him to be healed of his blindness, that in Jesus' mind, he thought, uh, he was so confident that his father was going to make this blind man see, that he thought, I'm just going to take him to a really beautiful spot. And that way, when the guy opens his eyes, it'll take his breath away. Like, I want to get him out of the city. I want, to, I want to take him to a place. You know, maybe Jesus had a place that he'd go to pray, off to pray. We know he did that. Or maybe it was like an overlook. Or maybe it was the water, the woods, anywhere but the sights and sounds of the city. And he thought, I'm just going to lead. I want to lead him here. So when his eyes, he's first able to see, I want him to see something special. In reality, church, I think it's probably a mixture of all those things. But I think we learn in this part of the story that if we want to trade our mediocre for God's more, it might require that we change setting. If we want to trade our mediocre for God's more, it might require that we change setting, that we change place, that we change location. Location matters. Place matters. Your setting can hinder God's ability to work through you, or it can enable it. This is what I mean. If you are constantly surrounded by unbelief, if you are constantly surrounded by doubt, constantly surrounded by darkness, constantly surrounded by discouragement, constantly surrounded by negativity, over time, church, that will be destructive for your soul. Place can limit power. Place can limit power. Some of you need to disrupt the faulty rhythms that you've developed in your life, some of the faulty patterns that you have developed, uh, simply by going some different places and doing some different things. In his book, The Imitation of Christ, the author Thomas Akempis wrote this 600 years ago. And this is well before social media or the internet or a $5,000 computer ever existed, but I think it is as relevant today as it ever was. Listen to what Thomas Akempis wrote. He said, we might have much peace if we would not meddle 
with other men's sayings and doings that do not concern us? How can he long live in peace who willfully meddles with other men's business and who seeks occasions for it straightway in the world and seldom or never gathers himself together in God? Church, people who are stuck in the same place, people who find themselves doing the same things over and over again like they're just stuck in life, these are the people that meddle. And they meddle because they don't have anything better to do. And people who meddle will never have peace, as Akimpa said. But uh, the good news is the cure for meddling is movement. Go somewhere else. Do something else. In the words of Thomas Akimpa's, gather yourself unto God. Less social media, more walking with Jesus. Yeah, I'm convinced, really, that most of society's ills could be calmed and resolved in a 15-minute walk with Jesus. Like all the things that stress you out on any given day, like the things that weigh you down, just stop, 15-minute walk with Jesus, take the Word with you so He can speak through it, listen by way of the Spirit to what He might say. I believe a lot of things that stress us out could be healed in just that one 15-minute walk. A different setting can lead to a fresh perspective, and a fresh perspective can lead to a renewed spirit. A different setting can lead to a fresh perspective, and a fresh perspective can lead to a renewed spirit. You will never experience more of God if you just keep going the same places and doing the same thing. That's why I think Jesus led the man out of the city, because he's about to do something new for him. He's about to do something fresh in his life. Now, I want to talk about this for a minute on a very practical level. Some of you, right now, your life, you feel racked with despair. Like when you look at your life and you look at the state of the world, you feel like you are barely, you're treading water and you're barely staying uh, above it. Uh, Some of you feel like you are, right now, today, even as I'm talking, like you can feel yourself drowning in a sea of your own anxiety. And every day, you are doing the same things and you are stewing over the same problems. And you think your world is the only world. And you think your problems are the only problems because they're the only ones that you ever see. But let me tell you something this morning, church. Right now, somewhere in the world, God is healing somebody. Right now, somewhere in the world, God is saving somebody. Right now, somewhere in the world, God is calling somebody. But sometimes, if you want to see the God who is actively moving, it is going to require that you also move. You can't always expect, just because God isn't working in that box that you have built for him, you don't see him doing anything in your box, doesn't mean that he isn't doing a lot of beautiful work in the rest of the world. We need a changed perspective. We need a changed lens. I think a lot of us just need a different setting. We just need to take a step away from our own life and go on a little walk, go on a little walk with Jesus. I think unintentionally, by limiting our view, by limiting our setting, we limit our access. I think many of us need a fresh setting, different view, different location, because place matters. Where we are matters. 
Now for uh, what I consider to be maybe the most interesting part of the story. Jesus leads the man out of the city and then he, he gets him wherever it is that he takes him and then to heal him, he spits on both of his eyes. That is not very COVID-19 friendly. It's just not. Guy from Bethsaida should have had a mask on. Been a different deal right there. He'd been protected. And, you know, I studied this this week, uh, and it's a really disgraceful thing in our society if somebody spits on you. And uh, it's a, it was a really disgraceful thing in Jewish society if somebody spit on you. Like, I studied it, and what I saw was, according to the law, the Old Testament, if a person was spit on, they were considered ceremonially unclean. And so everything that they had on, they had to wash and, and, and cleanse, and uh, they had to do that. And it, had, it was seven days before they could go back to the temple. They had to make sure that their uh, whole body had been purified. And so this seems like an odd move for Jesus. Like, why do it? Why, why spit? Well, I got two different possibilities, a couple of different possibilities. And I'll be honest with you and tell you that I'm not fully satisfied by either of these. And that if you have a better idea or even just a different one, I'm open to it. We can talk about it uh, after the service, but I'm going to share mine uh, with you now. One of the reasons that I think Jesus may have chose this particular method uh, is that Jesus would often change up his methods and modes of healing people so that people wouldn't begin to worship the method instead of the God who was healing. Like, I think Jesus knows what humanity is like. And we know this too. If Jesus were to, every time he performed a miracle, if he did the same three things, then as a people, we would worship that process and not the one whose touch is actually doing the healing. So I think he kept his methods of miracles unorthodox so that none of us could go, well, it's just these three steps. No, when a person gets healed, it's the touch of God that heals them. It's no process. It's God's touch. It is God's power. So that's one reason I think he, he chose a different method. And if you read the gospel straight through, you'll see that he often did that. He changed up the way he moved in a bunch of different situations. Now, I personally think that Jesus spit on the man's eyes to send a message to Satan. I think Jesus spit on the man's eyes to send a message to Satan. And the message was, if my spit can make a blind man see, imagine what my blood can do. If my spit can make a blind man see, imagine what my blood can do. The author Bob Yandian says it this way. And, and this, in my studies this week, this quote really kind of divert, you know, caught my attention and shifted my way of thinking about this text. This is what he says. He says, Jesus did not spit on the blind man. He spit on his blindness. This was the ultimate insult to sickness and disease. If Jesus could speak to sickness and rebuke it, then apparently sickness can hear. If sickness and disease can hear, it can also be insulted. Jesus released all of his contempt for Satan and his works when he spit on this man's blindness. This is what I think Andean is saying. I'm hoping I can, I can make it make sense. There's a story in Luke chapter four when Peter's mother-in-law has a fever and she's sick. And the Bible says that Jesus rebukes her fever. He rebuked her illness. He spoke a harsh word against her fever and then it went away. That's a really interesting thing to do. Like the idea of Jesus being angry 
with an illness. I think that seems interesting to me. Rebuke, like shouting down her, her sickness. Now, we need to know that Jesus didn't uh, rebuke every sickness in this way, but for whatever reason, he rebuked Peter's, mother, you know, Peter's mother-in-law's uh, fever, and the fever dissipated. And then here in this text, Jesus seems to show disgust at this man's blindness. Now, I think it's really important that we differentiate. Jesus isn't uh, angry with uh, the man. He's mad at the circumstances. Jesus loved the individuals, but he was disgusted with the problems that plagued them. Here's what I think is going on in a lot of ways, church. Jesus was around at the creation of the world. He set everything into its proper order. And when, when, when Jesus created the world, he created it perfect. And even when he came back to the world, he came back to the world to make all things new. There were times when he was walking around this planet that I think he looked out and he saw the effects of sin and he saw the effects of the depravity of man and I think it disgusted him. I think he was frustrated by it. I think he looked at Peter's mother-in-law's illness and saw the negative effect it had on her life and he rebuked it. And I think he looked at this man's blindness and the troubles that it had caused him over the years and I think he spit on it. He didn't spit on the blind man, he spit on his blindness. And for whatever reason, I think Jesus associated the work of Peter's mo uh, mother-in-law's fever and this man's blindness with the works of the evil one. I think he attributed at least these two. Now, if you go through the Gospels, what you're going to find is there are a lot of different times that Jesus heals people and he's very tender with them. You'll see that. Let's be clear about that. But in these two situations, the rebuke of the, the fever and the spitting on of the blindness, I think Jesus associated this thing with Satan. He saw these things as the fruit of Satan, and he rebuked them to send a message to Satan. Let me try to explain it in a different way. There's a, there's a story in Mark chapter 11 that I think lends credence to this interpretation. So in Mark 11, Jesus curses a fig tree. It's a weird story. He's walking up to uh, this tree and he's hungry and he wants to eat some of the fruit, some of the figs from the tree, uh, but he gets there and there's no figs on it and it makes him angry. Again, it's a scenario. I mean, church, who do you think, you know, created fig trees? Like I'm thinking fig trees may have been Jesus' idea. Like he created them and they're supposed to produce figs and he gets up there in our depraved world. He sees no figs on this fig tree and so he curses the fig tree. He says, let no man ever again eat fruit from this fig tree. Then you think the story's done. He and the disciples go on about their business. A day passes. They go do whatever it is that they're going to do. And then the next day, they're walking back by the fig tree. And the Bible says that the fig tree was withering from its roots. So what I need you to understand is, Jesus cursed the fig tree for its lack of fruit, but his cursing of its lack of fruit affected the roots. In the same way, in these stories, I think that's what's going on here. Jesus is rebuking in Peter's mother-in-law's illness and in the blindness of this blind man, Jesus is rebuking Satan's fruit. And in rebuking Satan's fruit, it has an effect on the evil one at the roots. I think every miracle that Jesus performed all throughout the scriptures, he was sending a message to Satan saying, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming, and things are changing. And that every miracle that he performed, every time he was cursing the fruit, 
Satan's power began to wither at its roots. The cursing of the fruit, the withering of the roots. If we want to trade our mediocre for God's more church, I think we need to realize the power that we have in the ability to, to pray. When we pray, I think especially when we pray for each other, God moves and Satan trembles. Our prayers are felt in different realms. Like Paul says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I think Jesus spit on the man for a couple of different reasons. One is to change up his method so people would know it's my dad that heals, it's not this process. And then two, I think he spit on the man's blindness to send a message to Satan. The message being, if my spit can make the blind to see, just wait and see what my blood can do. Now, there's one other thing that I find really interesting about this story. One other question that if you read this text, I think has to be addressed. And that is the progressive nature of this miracle. So this is the only time in the Bible that Jesus has to touch a man twice to heal him. That's weird. That's weird. We know he didn't have to. I mean, we know if he'd have wanted to, he had enough power once he could, he could have done it. So everything Jesus does, he does for a reason. But I think that should leave us asking the, the, the question, you know, why two touches? Why to remember? He touches him, spits, touches him the first time. He sees the trees, men looking like trees walking. Then he touches him again. He's able to see clearly. Why two touches? Some people have said that they think Jesus was simply working at the pace of the man's faith that he was trying to give him space and time for his faith to grow, which I think is a decent argument to make because Jesus has already walked with him, given him a little time to kind of feel safer with him. And so maybe he is just trying to create space and time for the man's faith to grow, for him to catch up to the moment, to uh, the seriousness of the situation and the circumstance that he found himself in. But I think there's more going on there than that. The author, Christopher Blumhart, says this, and I love this, I love this quote. If you're a person who writes quotes down, I think this would be a good one to write down. Chris Blumhart says, every one of us must undergo two conversions. First, from the world to God, then from God to the world. He says he thinks every one of us must undergo two conversions. First, from the world to God, then from God to to the world. Now, I don't know if y'all's journeys have been like mine, your spiritual journeys, um, but mine, and y'all know this, I was saved at like 12 or 13 years old at a little church in, in Maynardville. And um, that day, I really feel like in that moment, in the moment of my salvation, I feel like God revealed his love to me in a way that I'd never experienced it before. And I knew based on that day that I loved God in a way that I had never loved him before. I was so appreciative of, of, of grace, so appreciative for the cross. And that day I felt God by way of the Holy Spirit calling out to me and I surrendered to that call. And since that time, I've been pretty comfortable in resting in the fullness of his love and his knowing that I'm daily in pursuit of him. Now, the other side of that coin is still to this day, learning to love other people for me has been a process. Like learning to see you all the way that God sees you. 
And, and, and it's kind of easier. Y'all are my church, but learning to, people out, learning to see people out there the way that God sees them, that has been a process. Jesus touched me when I was 12 or 13 years old, and it saved my soul. But even today, right now, whatever the date is, I still need Jesus to touch my eyes so that I can see you all the way I'm supposed to see you. When Blumhart talks about two different conversions, he's like, we conversion number one, us to God. Conversion number two, us to each other. It is a process, a process that I think Jesus knew well. You know, I think one of the harmful things that has come out of evangelical culture, and I can say that because we are a part of evangelical culture, is this idea that a person is just supposed to have one salvation experience and then the show's over. Like they meet Jesus once at whatever age, they have that encounter, and that encounter changes everything, and it does, but, and they don't ever have to have another encounter because they had the one, and they just kind of rest in the laws of that and going about their business, church. Here, church, I'm here to tell you that even if you have felt Christ before, you can feel him again. Even if you've experienced, just because you've experienced God once when you're 12 or 13, don't mean you can't experience and feel him today. And I love that Jesus includes this story in the scriptures because he's saying, hey, sometimes it takes more than one touch. Sometimes it takes a couple of touches. Some of you need a bunch of touches. And if we want to trade our mediocre for God's more, then we have to learn that Jesus' touch is always available to us. It wasn't just available to you one time when you were 12 or 13 or one time when you were 20 or one time when you were six at a vacation Bible school. It is available to you. The touch of Christ is available to you right now. I'm not downplaying your salvation experience. Like I already said, I believe for me at 12 or 13 when I experienced it changed everything. But what I'm saying is, that's the beginning. That's the beginning of the journey. After that experience, there's many more times we have unlimited access to God's presence, power, and provision. The reason I wanted to preach the text this morning is because uh, I, I read it a couple of weeks ago in, in, a, in a book that I was reading mentioned this particular passage. And I found myself thinking, that when I look out at, at the world, I'm like, you know, a lot of people, when they see each other, it's like, the, the way that we kind of approach this world is that it's all about us. And this, it's our story, and it's our journey. And everybody else, you all are just like decorations in Brock's story. You're just like, and you're like the guy seeing the trees. It's like one dimensional. Everybody else really don't matter. Like I'm the one that mainly matters. And all the rest of you all are just kind of ornaments in my story. But church, listen to me. If your politics are more important than people, you probably need another touch. If your schedule is more important than people, you probably need another touch. If your pride is more important than people, you probably need another touch. One touch opens our eyes to God. I think the second touch opens our eyes to each other. Both are very, very necessary. If we want to trade our mediocre for more, then we might need to change our setting. I think we need to be reminded that when we pray, our prayers move heaven and shake hell. And if we want to trade our mediocre for more, I think we need to know that the touch of Christ 
is available to us at all times. Church, let's be a, a place and a people who don't settle for mediocre, who are constantly going to God, asking Him for more, 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 more. Pray with me, and I'm done. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and God, I'm grateful for who you are, and I'm grateful for uh, all that you do. I'm praying that you would move in our midst this morning. I'm praying that you would speak directly to somebody's heart. I'm praying that you would remind them that your son's touch is still available. God, there's somebody in this place right now, or there's somebody watching online, and they feel like they've been forgotten about. They feel like they have been discarded. They feel like they're not being paid uh, attention to. And I'm praying right now, in, in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would touch their hearts. That Jesus, in your tenderness, you would take your, your, your fingers and you would rub it on their eyes and that they would be open. They, they would find a fresh perspective and they would find their spirit renewed. God, move in our midst. Let us be different. Do something here. Help us to take advantage of our unlimited access to you by way of the cross. Help us to take advantage of the unlimited power, peace, and provision that you offer. When we leave today, may we feel more peace, more power, more love, more grace. God, we know you are more than enough for us in every way, and we are tired of mediocre. Lead our church into more. I pray this now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.